This is a show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve him and their neighbor, for whom the words of the creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is a show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. We're continuing our conversation on the month of October, uh, which the United States bishops have designated as Respect Life Month, looking at all of the various implications that that has for us as Catholics. Uh, we talked last week specifically that that our respect for human life comes first and foremost from the dignity of the human person created in the image of God, and that it then impacts all of these various areas that that we're interested in and talk about, but that those those places of advocacy are not the beginning and end in and of themselves. They start back at this picture that we have, that all human life is created in the image of God. And no conversation about this would really be complete without having a conversation with Dr. Charles Camosi. He's an associate professor of theological and social ethics at Fordham University. Uh, You can find his writing all over the place in multiple news outlets, the Journal of Moral Theology. Uh, But most recently, he's got a couple of books I want to draw your attention to, uh, both from New City Press. The first is Resisting Throwaway Culture, How a Consistent Life Ethic Can Unite a Fractured People. We had a conversation about this um, when it first came out. You can find that in our archives over at OutsideTheWalls.com. But most recently, and the one we're going to talk about today, is called Losing Our Dignity. How Secularized Medicine is Undermining Fundamental Human Equality. Again, this is on UCD Press. And if you're not much of a reader, good news, it's also on Audible. So you can listen to it in your car, on your commute, uh, however you want to handle I'm not an Audible person, so I don't know how that works. Uh, but Dr. Kamosi, it is such a pleasure to have you on again. Oh, it's great to be on Outside the Walls again. Thank you. So... Um, in this, uh, you know, we've all seen coming across uh, either the evening news or looking at our Facebook feeds or whatever that happens to be. We have all seen those uh, pictures of robot assistants. Uh, and and we look at them like uh, there have even been movies about it. And, of course, in all the movies, they, they turn evil. Uh, so, you know, that ought to be a hint for us. But... <laughs> But there's this there's this view of oh well look look at what technology is doing, uh, and look at how much uh, we can save on tasks that we wouldn't otherwise want to do, um, and yet there's something about that specifically as we're looking at um, care robots, uh, those that that will work in um, in healthcare industry that are concerning uh, and and of course as a moral theologian you bring up some issues that maybe explain why the rest of us feel a little bit ill at ease with that. Can you, uh, can you share with us? Yeah. So you're right. I think to point to a broader set of concerns here about robots, I mean, um, not to take us in a slightly different direction, but the labor shortage we're currently undergoing has just put um, a, a trajectory, which is already out of control on a fast track towards robots, replacing all sorts of, jobs and positions and the culture even faster right so corporations are just are are sort of falling all over themselves like how can we replace people with uh boxes uh that have computer programs inside them Mm -hmm. and uh and that's okay i guess if we're talking about flipping burgers if we're talking about bank tellers or something but there's something profoundly mistaken or out of place when we think about caregiving right like Mm -hmm. 
a box with a program, computer program inside can't care for anyone. It's a category mistake to talk that way. Um, but that's precisely what we're moving towards in a very, maybe not as, as fast as we are to towards truck drivers and burger flippers, but we're, but we're still moving very quickly. And one, and I focus in the book on one particular aspect of this, which is, um, you know, those who are suffering from dementia or other, uh, or Alzheimer's disease or other kinds of dementia. And, um, and what seems clear is we just don't have enough caregivers to properly care for these populations. And then we especially won't have enough caregivers over the next couple decades when this population will double. We're already essentially putting these populations in warehouses and giving them drugs, uh, antipsychotic drugs they don't need just to keep them docile because we don't have enough people to care for them properly. And some say with some reason, well, let's at least give them the care of a robot if we can't give them any care at all. And this is what I'm concerned about because if you look around and say, well, where are we putting these robots? It's places where we don't think there ought to be um, or it's not necessary to have human interaction. And what does it say about this population in particular, if we say, you know, let's just give them robots. Let's not work on reforming the system. Let's not pay caregivers more. Let's not rethink the structures by which we care for our elderly and disabled. Let's just give them a robot. So this is, this is akin to, um, there's this family Laura story of when my oldest was an infant. Um, we, we finally got that, that coveted date night and we left the the child with our parents who have, you know, they, they raised a couple of kids. They're experts at this, right? Well, he was a particularly stubborn child and apparently screamed for the three hours we were gone. And at, and at one point my dad looked at him and said, if you're going to scream, even if I'm holding you, I'm just going to put you on the floor, right? You, you can, you can sit over there. You're unmanageable. Uh, and it's kind of funny when you're thinking about it, when there's a short term and it's a kid and it's at a, but when we do that to those who are most vulnerable in an ongoing way, and we're saying, we're going to put you in, in care and we're just going to, if you're going to be too difficult for us to figure out or to manage, we're just going to put you over in the corner. You can have a robot. We're going to be hands off. Totally. I'm curious, our hospital system here really in the Western world was founded by Christian ethics. It was founded by us saying we are Christian. We believe in the dignity of the human person. Therefore we will provide care. Uh, The title of your book is how secularized medicine is undermining fundamental human equality. Um, As we have seen the, that kind of Christian ethos ebb away out of that, that care system we're looking at this really kind of a post-Christian slash pre-Christian culture retake hold. And it's very utilitarianist in its view of humanity. So if we're coming to recognize this and we're seeing the dangers uh, ahead of us, how can we um, both the individual person and, and then collectively as society begin to stem that tide away from this utilitarianist view and into, again, recognizing and advocating for the dignity of the human person? Well, here I think it's important to combine the insights of my last two books because I think throwaway culture, as we discussed last time, does a really good job of even, of you know, hiding even what's happening here. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we still talk as if 
all human beings are equal, right? And that in some ways you could argue that the culture is more obsessed with human equality than it's ever been from a certain perspective. But what what happens on the DL, on the down low, of course, is we've changed our, our version of what counts as human dignity and human equality, which excludes whole major populations. And in the book I go through, you know, everything from brain death to so-called vegetative state to abortion to even the, um, you know, the, the cases of Alfie Evans and Charlie Gar, you know, in, um, like toddlers with unexplained neurodegenerative disease and, of course, dementia. And so what I think we need to do first is just kind of name what's happening here and say, you know, we've moved from this thing we used to call fundamental human equality. And we still kind of do, but it used to mean that all human animals were equal, right? Yeah. But now it means only some human animals are equal. You have to have certain traits like rationality, self-awareness, um, productivity, autonomy, et cetera, will. Um, and, and when you do that, it becomes abundantly clear that not every human animal has those um, capacities in the same uh, regard. In fact, some appear not to have them at all. Like you have a prenatal child or someone with a massive brain injury, et cetera. Um, and so what I think we need to do is highlight this and say, where does this end up? I mean, even if one has debates, and I think we should have debates about those other issues, there's very little debate about uh, yet so far anyway, uh, amongst the average folks anyway, about whether grandma who's in the, you know, in the mid to late stages of Alzheimer's disease, whether she is in fact our equal, whether she is in fact one of us. But it's in, it's unsustainable to continue to say that because I don't need to tell you, I don't need to tell your listeners that when you reach those later stages of dementia, you lose things like rationality, self-awareness, mm -hmm. autonomy, and those traits, which uh, we've kind of slouched towards to in a utilitarian way, as you helpfully put it. And so I think what I, what we need to do is really, well, two things. We need to sound the alarm about the problem and say, listen, we're on this trajectory. The next group to fall is going to be grandma with late stage Alzheimer's. And then we need to name the solution to the problem, which is a theological solution. And I know, I know that gets me into contested waters pretty quickly about like, well, what to do about that. But I, but I think we just need to wrestle with the fact that the, the foundation for human dignity, the foundation for human dignity as conceived by the healthcare system that we used to have, that the foundational healthcare system that we used to have, which came from the church, mm -hmm. um, is, is grounded not in these utilitarian calculations about who has what kinds of traits, but rather about what kind of nature we share and, and, and whether that nature reflects the image and likeness of God. And human nature does, of course, do that. And so we need to be, we've, we've, we've fooled around for too long, it seems to me, trying to translate our views into some kind of milk toast, um, you know, least common denominator type philosophical view that really doesn't capture the fullness of our theological commitments, which is to, again, every human animal bearing the same human nature that bears the image and likeness of God. And, and we need to be upfront about the fact that human dignity and human equality is grounded theologically. If you're just joining us, our guest today is Dr. Charles Camosi, Associate Professor of Theological and Social Ethics at Fordham University. Somewhat recently, I watched my father-in-law go through Alzheimer's, and my mother-in-law was his caregiver the whole time, and I noticed the, the just tender, affectionate care that she provided. And it, it was difficult. You know, it, being a caregiver specifically, she's out in a rural area. Uh, there's not a huge support network out there, and it was very difficult for her to do, but it sprung out of her deep affection for her husband. 
And I wonder if a great part of what we're seeing here, um, when it's someone who's not deeply connected to us or when we don't have the resources to be able to do it on our own, um, I wonder if what we're seeing here is a wider dehumanization or depersonalization of the other, you know, whether that's through our social interactions now all done through a computer curated by algorithm um, or whether it's through just now I don't really have to, I can check out self checkout at the grocery store. I can do almost all of my necessity. I can even, you know, uh, at the grocery store, I can do the self checkout, but I can also order it online and have someone drop it off at my car. And the, the human interaction that we are made to have is just shrinking day by day by day. Is there some um, aspect of these further down the road dehumanization um, results springing from our just general depersonalization of life? I think that's right. And to be honest, I'm not trying to hold myself above other people. I'm caught in it myself. I don't know if you have this experience too, but like um, before the pandemic, when I was going to to restaurants or going to coffee shops to work or something like that more often. Uh, you know, I would intentionally choose to go, for instance, to my local Panera mm-hmm. where I could just order on a screen and, and it would just show up <laughs> at my table uh, where I didn't have to deal with somebody. Right. And, oh, that's great. You know, I don't have to deal <laughs> with somebody. Um, I could just sit down at my table and the food and the coffee will be there. And it would just be great. Um, I think something similar about tellers or, you know, bank tellers, which I mentioned earlier, but that's a horrible um, uh, habit of mine. It's a horrible disposition of mine. It's a sinful one. Well, extra extrovert me. Like if, if I'm at a grocery store, unless that line is just a mile long, I'm always going to pick the real person because I want to chat, right? That That's just who I am. Um, I, one of the one of the most distasteful and like soul wrenching things to me. Yeah, ATMs perfect. You can use them when you need them. You drive up and you go through. One of the most uh, gut wrenching things I ever saw was there was at the teller counter. Teller, teller, teller. Or actually, it was just like two tellers and like three bank machines right up front at the teller desk. And all of a sudden, that felt a little different. But it's kind of the trend and tra- trajectory. Um, that, oh, well, really, this is a task. It's not really a job. It's a task, and we can get this task and give it to uh, a depersonalized thing, and it'll be more efficient that way. Yeah, efficiency, right? The um, the mother of all values, we're talking about making profits, and mm-hmm. that's what this is ultimately behind. That's part of what throwaway culture is. Um, hiding uh, the the evil of who we throw away as a result of trying to get more efficient and make more profits. And um, you know, a big theme of my book, again, that we talked about last time, is that we need to really try to build a culture, a counterculture of encounter with, with actual real human beings. There are all sorts of reasons for that. I mean, we're desperately lonely. We need, we're built for that kind of relationships, both theologically, spiritually, and also biologically and evolutionarily. Um, but it also helps us to connect to the means of production and say, well, you know, how, how, how is this product that I'm purchasing made? Like who made it? And, and was it, was it, were the workers paid well? And, and how were animals treated if they were part of this and, and all sorts of issues of justice and ecological concern and, and Catholic social teaching are part of that. But, but this really, and I was 
really disappointed in myself, frankly, that I didn't include this set of issues in resisting throwaway culture. It's just so prominent in how we treat our elderly and disabled at the end of life. I mean, we really do discard them almost literally in warehouses of death, again, where we over-medicate them with antipsychotic medications that they don't need to keep them docile. Um, we don't visit them. Anybody that's you know visited um, these warehouses of death know that there are so many desperately lonely people uh, there. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, and, and one of the sobering experiences that I've had in writing this book is I've talked to, I live in New Jersey where we have a lot of, uh, a lot of immigrants, especially at my parish. I've talked to a lot of them about that. And they said, you know, one of the first things uh, that I noticed here that disturbed me was how you treat uh, elderly people here in this country. You know, we would never uh, just warehouse our elderly away where they could never see anyone and wouldn't see anyone. And obviously during the pandemic, there were other reasons for that, but right. that was a problem before the pandemic. And, um, and so one of the things that I argue for in the book very strongly is, you know, is, is for this culture of encounter to really be something we focus on in treating our disabled and elderly. And obviously that's, that's part of a culture where we're, we're disassociating from encounter more efficient, less, you know, uh, things that throw <laughs> inefficiencies into the system as it were like a conversation with you at the grocery store or something like that. But where the rubber, where the rubber really meets the road is when we, we have a we we just warehouse our elderly um, instead of having this a culture of encounter where we treat them like our equals. Well, and we're talking about at the grocery store, but there's also I mean, this culture of efficiency is in in healthcare and even in Catholic healthcare uh, institutions, where uh, to a lesser degree, hopefully and perhaps. <laughs> Um, but uh, my my general care practitioner was said, yeah, you got to you've got to have uh, ten to fifteen minute interactions, and that's it. You know, in, in and out, and you've got to have so many as your quota uh, for the hour because we got to get through all these people. Um, and that whole whole idea of even even for something as simple as a well checkup, you still would like to have time for encounter, and we just yeah. no longer value it. And that's, and that's one of the things, I mean, one of the things that gives me hope actually is, you know, one out of every seven people that go to the hospital in the United States today goes to a Catholic institution. Mm-hmm. We actually have, if we were to use it, a lot of power to move this culture into a different direction. Um, I'm not convinced that's necessarily going to happen tomorrow because a lot of, as you intimate, uh, Catholic healthcare is, is beholden to an outside kind of secular understanding of, of value and of, of what ultimately matters. And of course you got to pay the bills and you got to keep the lights on. You got to pay your employees and whatnot, but you can do, do all that. We have done all that historically without capitulating to a very sort of, I mean, is it fair to say anti-Catholic yeah. <laughs> understanding of what it means? Um, uh, you know, the patient as person, person, um, everything at the service of the person, right. And, Structures at the service of the person, not structures for their own sake. Um, so, so yeah, I, 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 on the one hand, I feel very hopeful because we have, in theory, the power to really push things in a different direction. Mm-hmm. But to be honest, I don't see a lot of evidence that, I mean, maybe the pandemic, here's, I'll finish this point this way. Maybe the pandemic has, has lit a fire. I mean, it, maybe it's, maybe it's shown that we have to do something differently, Um and that could be one of the silver lines of the pandemic. I don't know. I've written about that, and I hope it's true. Dr. Kermosi, one of the other things that I think is important for us to realize is that our experience of this in the United States is not 
ubiquitous and the way that we handle that. You mentioned it briefly with the, the immigrants coming over and their response to it. But uh, in some ways, looking to our, our neighbors is a way for us to maybe get a handle on this again. Um, I, uh, I spent some time abroad uh, in college and was in the Baltic states. Um, and while I was there, I was shocked that everyone lived in multi-generational households, Mm. um, that it was expected. You know, we, we look at it and say, Oh, you're, you're 35 and still living at mom and dad's. And of course that's the culture that we have today because of, of of economics and everything else. But that's looked at with derision. Whereas when I was there, um, there, here's this family and, and in that family, they live in this, this flat and in the flat with them is mom and dad and grandma all together with four generations living under one roof. And it was completely normalized. Uh, and so I think in some of this, it's our our rugged independentism that is lot, making us think that we don't need the other or, and, and likewise that that other person doesn't need us. Yeah, that's very, very well said. And, um, and that's, again, where a Catholic vision is helpful too. A universal vision is helpful where we don't have to be beholden to a U.S. American kind of rugged individualism model for doing these things. I, at the end of the book, I go into um, three different levels of kind of responses we can have to the dementia crisis. One is a more short-term, like what can we do now with our own choices? A, a second level might be how we dialogue with the broader culture. And a third level might be if that dialogue fails, what the church needs to do to kind of have an all hands on deck response. But what I take you to be suggesting there, even though it does have some structural, you know, cultural issues related to it, which might fall into the second level of responses, it also does impact our own decision making, right? Like where do we choose to live in relation to our parents and and other family? What kind of housing do we um, choose to live in? uh, in relation to our family, my, my own family, we, we have, uh, my wife and I have it, um, parents who are in their early seventies. And it's very clear that, um, this house, uh, will soon be too big, uh, for our kids as they, we have one small child, about three, but our other older adopted kids are, you know, 23, 18 and, and 16. And we're starting now to think, okay, when this house is too big for us, what are we going to do? Where are we going to live? What kind of jobs are we going to take? And what will the housing look like with specific reference to our parents? And um, now if I hadn't gone through this, <laughs> writing this book and, and thinking about these questions, I probably wouldn't have this on the front of my mind, but I'd like us all to have these things on the front of our minds. At this first level, we do have a choice about the kinds of um, housing, the kinds of professional, the kinds of uh, familial decisions that we actually choose to make. And if we can make them differently, then maybe we won't have to outsource the care of our parents to, to warehouses of death. And we can instead, though it's not easy, I understand it's not easy. And you understand it's not easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can make the choices to care for our loved ones at home if that's possible. Well, to some extent, if you're not currently facing that decision, there are things that we can do early on when that decision's not really imminent uh, that can help make that decision easier when the time comes along. So if it, if it comes down to what is my living situation, am I going to be moving sometime in the next X number of years? And then put factor that into the decision uh, of to, as to what kind of house I need. Um, mm-hmm. 
and, and of course, you know, it doesn't have to be this sprawling mansion. It's just a matter of, okay, it, is it all on one floor? Do I have right. a room on that first floor in case that I have a, a parent who's not able to traverse steps? Uh, is, is there a place that I can make room um, in my household for those who are most dear to me? And will I even be in the same place that my parents are? Like where I'm going to just force them to live where I am, you know, uh, uh, you know, that's even a choice as well. I mean, we're, we're, I I don't know about you, but I was part of a generation, uh, where my parents, uh, told, uh, you know, baby boomers told the Gen X kids and the millennial kids they had, you know, go fly, go follow your dreams, you know, do go wherever. Don't worry about us. You know, we don't want to be a burden to you. And that's a big part of the problem here too, is a lot of, um, our, our elderly and disabled, um, older people think of themselves as a burden, right. Rather than as, you know, <laughs> um, as with, as with parents of, of children, you know, it's obviously a burden in some sense to care for your children, but it's also a great gift to care for your children. I mean, a, a similar thing we should say about caring for our parents, right? Of course, it's maybe not easy, but it's also a great gift or we should, we should start thinking of it as, as, as such. But, but too often the culture itself, like a throwaway culture, in fact, sees those who are, you know, not able to contribute something as it were as, as burdensome and they themselves think of it that way. And so, so maybe there's even something to be said for not encouraging your children just to flee to the four corners of the earth, if that's where their heart and minds takes them. But, but, but a sense of like that there are multiple goods to consider and, mm-hmm. and maybe part of, you know, it is a good to go pursue your dream. But it's also a good to to stay and be part of a community and part of your family. And if if we're living in that tension, you know, I don't I don't presume to speak for everyone about this, but if we can live more in that tension with mo- considering that there are multiple goods at stake, uh, maybe that would also help contribute to some of the pro- the solution to the problem. And honestly, right now is a great time to be considering that because as a result of the pandemic, a number of sectors of the economy have become more remote work friendly in their stance. I've got a number of colleagues in my, uh, in my specific job that decided that now is the time uh, to, because they can live anywhere, because we've been working successfully remotely uh, during the duration of this, uh, this pandemic, uh, now is the time that they decided to move closer to family. And so a number of them I still see in meetings uh, every, just about every day, uh, but they now are across the country. And so perhaps you work in an industry that also has that ability. Maybe now is the time to be praying and considering uh, what that might look like for you in the future. Our guest today is Dr. Charles Camosi, Associate Professor of Theological and Social Ethics at Fordham University. The book is Losing Our Dignity, How Secularized Medicine is Undermining Fundamental Human Equality. It's available right now on New City Press. You can also get it on Audible if that's more your jam. And don't go anywhere because there is more to this conversation just on the other side of this break. Why don't you come and join the ongoing conversation with us over on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls on Twitter, the handles at outside the walls. I'm sure that you have something to say on this topic and I would love your input. So come leave a comment, share your perspective, and then stay tuned for much more right after this. You're listening to outside the walls with TL Putnam.
Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief in our daily life. I'm your host, T.L. We're talking today with Dr. Charles Camosi, Associate Professor of Theological and Social Ethics at Fordham University, uh, and talking about the dignity of the human person and how we have to view our, really our life and our decisions through that lens. We have to start with this picture that each person that we come into contact with, the person who cuts us off in traffic uh, and makes us so angry, the Karen who lives next door is endowed with incomparable dignity by the just by the virtue that they were made in the image and the likeness of God. When we begin to, to um, project that image of dignity onto not only the unborn, most certainly the unborn, but not only the unborn, uh, onto the, the infant, onto the person at work that just grates us just so much, uh, onto the politician, onto the, the most vulnerable among us. When we can see the image of dignity on them, all of a sudden it's going to change the way that we relate to them and to the world around us. And this is essential for us as Catholics to recognize that all of the frustration that we may have with a person does not negate their dignity. And through that, to make choices that uphold, that support that dignity, and that cause us to advocate for that dignity when it is withheld in injustice. So we're talking today with Dr. Kamosi. Thank you again for being on the show. It's my pleasure. So earlier in the episode, you mentioned that there are three possible responses for us uh, as we're coming and wrestling with this issue. Is it, Really, it's kind of the, the, the pot is boiling so slowly that we're not noticing it. But really, it is speeding up in its, uh, in its intensity of finding the next target of dehumanization that will make our lives easier, right? So um, how do we, faithful Catholics, desiring to, uh, to live out a, a life informed by our Catholicism, how do, we, how do we respond to this? Well, um, as I mentioned in the previous segment, we, we have a, we're going to have a doubling of the dementia population over the next generation. And we already don't have enough resources to care for the population we currently have. So so it's, it's, it's got to be an immediate response. We have to respond now. Um, not everything can be done immediately. And so I also have a kind of medium-term set of proposals and then a longer-term set of proposals. And we talked a little bit about the, 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 what we can do immediately in the last segment. Part of it is our own individual choices about where we live and um, how our local communities decide about what they do. I mean, parishes, for instance, can be much more involved, I think, in uh, dementia care, in in having the, the pro-life group or the human concerns group, or sometimes both the human concerns and the pro-life group get involved in these uh, in these sets of issues. I mean, even just organizing confirmation groups to go visit the elderly and infirmed and, and disabled is just a tremendous gift. My oldest daughter uh, did that uh, for for years, and it was just a joyous time for her and the people she visited. Again, it's a it's a warehouse of loneliness and isolation, um, and that's that's all good and that's all important to do. But if we don't change the structures of our culture, if we don't 
convince the broader culture to not slouch towards robots, to not slouch towards assisted suicide, to instead move towards a culture of encounter. Mm-hmm. Um, where those short-term things, again, are good, but they're not going to be sufficient. And so kind of medium-term approach that I give for maybe the next 10 years or so is for the church and others who are, who are on board with this to engage the broader culture on this. And again, as I said in the last segment, to be forthright about that, the fact that this requires a theological uh, grounding to say, you know, there isn't human dignity really without um, uh, the the uh, supposition, the foundation that we're all made in the image and likeness of God. And and we share some overlap, frankly, with, with lots of secular folks. There's lots of secular folks who are, for instance, interested in disability rights, who are extremely supportive of what we'd be up to um, addressing Alzheimer's and other kinds of disease. And maybe we could work backwards from there into the other kinds of uh, denials of human dignity that we've seen as well. Um, So essentially what I propose is that for a decade or so, we do our best to really dialogue. And again, I published this book with New City Press, which is the Focolare, which which is the Catholic apostolate designed basically to dialogue as it's fundamental mission. So it's no accident I published with them. But finally, if that fails, um, and maybe even if it's not clear that it's failing or not, we, the church, need to gear up for a situation in which millions and millions of people with dementia are either at risk for being just totally isolated and cared for by robots, boxes with computer programs inside, uh, or push towards euthanasia. And we are going to have to respond as, and I detail this in the book, as many Catholics responded analogously, I think, to the kind of euthanasia programs that were in Nazi Germany, right? It's very similar, actually, what happened in Nazi Germany. There were lots of, you know, useless eaters or life unworthy of life for people who were, you know, not, uh, you know, uh, sufficiently um, productive or didn't meet the criteria for what mattered according to the Third Reich. And they were euthanized. Yeah. And, uh, and, and we're already, frankly, let's just be honest about this. It's not, euthanasia is not just, you know, injecting drugs into somebody's arm or something or giving them an overdose of pills. It can also be biomission. You can also kill someone. You can euthanize them biomission. And in many contexts, that's what we're doing mm-hmm. and already. And, um, and we need to step up and say uh, the church will be the place if, if we can't convince a broader culture to stop these things, to care for the, well, first of all, we're not going to participate. Catholic healthcare won't participate in this, hopefully. And as I mentioned last segment, one in seven people um, today um, who go to the hospital go to a Catholic hospital. We also have to have an all hands on deck approach to be the place where these populations are cared for. And that's going to require um, a, maybe might require um, something something like a mass conversion or a kind of coming coming back to Jesus move moment for the church, a, a kind of uh, kind of movement that would that would light us on fire for Christ and, and for those who bear the face of Christ in a special way, the vulnerable and least among us. But I give some examples. like could there be new religious orders form that would address this problem? could could, um, could Catholic um, school buildings and convents and rectories currently sitting empty be repurposed to, to be used for clinics and other places to care for, again, millions and millions of people who are otherwise be thrown away by the culture to be cared for as our equals? Um, uh, could we have, you know, again, uh, uh, just a reorienting of parish life and of church life 
to make this be the kind of way the and and I'll finish with this point. In the past, we have responded as church yeah. the, with this kind of dramatic um, response. There's there's um, historical evidence to show, in fact, that during plagues and other medical emergencies in the ancient world, it was the churches kind of sticking around and being the social welfare safety net for for the for the culture that that was so attractive, frankly, to converts that that helped the church become something other than this, you know, broad, broadly dismissed kind of um, weird Jewish sect uh, into right. something that was much more, much more serious. And so if we can, if we can recapture that history, um, I hope it doesn't come to that point, but if it does come to that point, we really need to recapture that part of who we are. I found some hope uh, just in, at least in the dialogue level during the pandemic uh, for uh, for the necessity of masking up or for vaccinating for the purpose of the elderly and those who are uh, who are in danger. And and the concern that was shown at least uh, expressed over the the just explosion of, of COVID in healthcare facilities for for the aged. Um, but I obviously just looking at it is good, but it's not enough. There has to be some kind of action associated with that. And I've seen a couple of models and I want to get your take on them. Um, one of them is a, uh, a situation where it's hybrid. Um, we're just going to call it multi-generational, but the, the, the news, um, news story called it hybrid, a hybrid daycare and, uh, and elder care where you had the older uh, adults who are able to, and obviously this, these are those who are not yet struggling from dementia, uh, but able to, to hold the babies and take care of them and provide that extra, you know, just to the level that they could. And then you still had other, um, other people around who are managing the care of both. But then I'm also seeing a model in a kind of a college dorm situation where it is both, uh, those students who are just starting their life and those who are coming to the end of it and the friendships that that sprung between them and the, the just dealing with loneliness, but also dealing with being able to recognize our place as being the receivers of what's handed down. Um, what would, what does it look like in your mind? What are the strengths or the weaknesses of those approaches uh, to, to this looming epidemic? I think those are both great approaches and I, there won't be a one size fits all um, solution to these problems, especially different cultural, different institutional, different, you know, infrastructural resources um, will push, uh, you know, one or other community in, in a different direction. But I, th but I think those are both great. And one of the, I think intergenerationality, which is at the heart of both of those suggestions, I, as I understand them, is a key part of this. And with regard to the second one in particular, I really think we need to find some way to focus on the fact that our young people are desperately lonely and in need of um, yeah. relationships outside of the glowing rectangles that are constantly in front of their face. And I realize the irony of me saying that is we both have glowing rectangles in front of our <laughs> face at the moment. Um, uh, with the fact that our that our that our older uh, folks are also desperately lonely. I mean, there seems like a wonderful opportunity here to address the railway culture with regard to both these populations and create a genuine counterculture of encounter, and for both populations to learn from each other. Right. I mean, one of the things that 
was so evident during the pandemic is we just didn't have the technology available that we should have had available to have isolated elderly and nursing homes just have kind of basic technological connection with, um, Mm-hmm. you know, with their families and with their friends and whatnot. And who better to, to be able to facilitate that than young people, right? And to, to, to help teach and maybe even create some of the actual, you know, electronic infrastructure and um, IT infrastructure in these nursing homes um, as well. But also the kind of, and it's a cliche, but it's so true, the kind of wisdom and experience um, that the elderly have to, to offer young people, especially to to offer a vision of the good, a vision of humanity that didn't always have a glowing rectangle as part of the scenario, right? To say that, you know, there's a there's a part of what it means to be human that's separate from that, and and let's let me tell you some stories, Sonny, about how that might have worked, and 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 offer that, and but most of all, just to have the connections, to have the relationships, and I even in my own parish, actually, there's a there's a a building uh, that's being rented out for um, a school for for kids with special needs, and there's a convent which is almost totally empty. And I was talking to my um, I was talking to my pastor about this, and I said, you know, why don't we think creatively about how to use these spaces? Could we, when the convent is available, could we create you know kind of a senior home there, but think about it as intentionally connected to the school or to the to the kids in a particular way? And there's a actually physically garden a garden that's physically between these two buildings. And I thought that could at least be a starting place where we could, you know, have younger people and older people meet and connect about gardening and about food and about, you know, literally life, a certain kind of life and about human life or in relation to that life. I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not an expert on these things, obviously, but if that, that's the kind of creative um, mentality and inter with regard, especially to intergenerational, relationships and encounters that I think is going to be part of the solution here. Yeah. Another question that, that springs up and this will maybe be the last one we have time for. Um, Everything seems to, in our day and age, be a business, a thing that we can extract money from. And and so anything that requires having work to do or a job to do, we think about in terms of business Uh, and we're seeing that's, grow more and more even in healthcare where traditionally healthcare has been a nonprofit where it's not been uh, tied to investors that have to get a certain return out of it. Uh, is there, um, well, obviously, I, obviously I think there is some danger in that. What would be a path forward for us to reclaim the, uh, the care aspect and maybe strip away some of the business aspect from our healthcare industry? Well, I think especially if we're talking about Catholic healthcare, we need to reinvigorate this idea that um, it's not just this other hospital that might have a cross on the facade. Yeah, it's our hospital, right? It's it's the it's the Catholic community's hospital, and so we have a responsibility for it as well. So it's not just just like any other hospital is trying to make a buck and keep the lights on, but. I mean, this is how, in fact, these hospitals were created. They were created by local Catholic communities and sometimes religious orders and supported by the local Catholic communities, right? And supported by the local religious orders. And to the extent that that's a different kind of financial model, which of course it is, than just, you know, getting the right insurance reimbursements and getting the right donors and getting the right um, reimbursement rates for various procedures. And as you mentioned earlier, getting the 
the right amount of time that you see patients so you can get them in and out the door and charge yeah. them appropriately. Um, if, if, the, if, if we return to this idea that this is our hospital, this is our responsibility, then um, that, at least in theory, gives us the opportunity to say, no, it's not just about those things. It's about care for the person. And it's not just going to be because we have these other resources um, and because the local Catholic community cares so much about it, it's willing to put its money and its time uh, where its mouth is. Um, we can maybe do things a little differently, even if they're not, you know, we could treat the elderly differently, even if it's not the most efficient way, the most uh, the way that's going to make the most money for the hospital, because we have people who actually care about treating these populations like our equals. Our guest today has been Dr. Charles Camosi, an associate professor of theological and social ethics at Fordham University. Uh, he has written numerous books, all of which I highly recommend, including Resisting Throwaway Culture, How a Consistent Life Ethic Can Unite a Fractured People, and most recently, Losing Our Dignity, How Secularized Medicine is Undermining Fundamental Human Equality. Both are available on New City Press and this one, is specifically available, if you are so inclined, on Audible. Dr. Kamosi, it is always a pleasure to have you on the show. No, no, my pleasure's all on this side of the table. If you missed any part of my conversation with Dr. Kamosi, or you want to go back and listen to it again or share it with your friends on social media, have no fear. All of our episodes are archived over at OutsideTheWalls.com. There you can listen to this episode with Dr. Kamosi or the previous ones where we've had him on the show. Just find his name there in the right-hand sidebar and listen to all his episodes. If you can't get enough, well, I've got good news. We have more to this conversation. We talked with Dr. Kamosi about the Magenta Project, a new initiative he's doing with New City Press uh, that I think that you're going to be interested in. And that extra segment is given to all those who support the show through Patreon uh, at, a, at even a nominal level. You can learn more about our Patreon support community and how you can get access to that extra segment by going to OutsideTheWalls.com and clicking that Patreon link in the top right-hand corner of the page where it says Patreon hyphen support the show. Now let's turn our attention to our readings from Scripture and church history. That's the sound of the Verbum Library launching up. Verbum helps you read Scripture in light of church teaching, putting Scripture and connecting it to the catechism and documents of the church and the whole magisterium right at your fingertips. Learn more at Verbum.com. Our readings from Scripture come from Year B, from the 31st Sunday in Ordinary Time. This is the Gospel, the Gospel of Mark. And we hear, One of the scribes came to Jesus and asked him, Which is the first of all the commandments? Jesus replied, The first is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The scribe said to him, well said, teacher, you are right in saying he is one and there is no other than he. And to love him with all your heart and with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is worth more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered with understanding, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And no one dared ask him any more questions. That reading comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. 
Over the last few years, I've been reading Scripture a little bit differently than I have for most of my life. I've been coming into these stories and into these readings, taking nothing for granted, making as much as possible no assumptions beforehand. Used to be when I would read these kinds of stories, I would always read the questioner as someone who uh, was trying to pull something over on Jesus. And we see this a lot in Scripture where it says Jesus knowing that they were trying to trap him and then going on. So I always had this picture of people who were asking these questions of God, uh, of, of Jesus, um, really intending uh, to pull pull a fast one on them and to show that he wasn't who he says he was. And it, perhaps perhaps this is true. Perhaps the person asking this question already had in his mind the answer that he wanted so that he could show that he was smarter than Jesus when Jesus didn't answer it. But maybe, maybe just maybe, he really was asking that as a legitimate question and was impressed by the answer and said, wow, yeah, you're, you're right about that. I'm considering that and, and I agree with it. Um, and, and I've begun reading uh, very carefully Jesus' response. And here Jesus' response also wasn't to trick him or to, uh, to show him up. It was of Jesus looked at his response and genuinely said, you, you're close. You're, you're almost there. You've, you've got it. And then, of course, everyone was amazed and didn't want to be the next one to ask the question. But I wonder how, how often we might fall into that scenario of listening to what Jesus says and thinking, yeah, 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 I could see how you could be right there, Jesus, and then go along our merry way. But Jesus is inviting us when he says, you are not far from the kingdom of God, it's not as if to say, well, you're not there. It's more to say, oh, you're, you're so close. Just take that one extra step. You're so close. And so here we have Jesus answering, what's the greatest commandment? What's the first commandment? And Jesus answers that. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. And then Jesus goes on to answer a question that was not asked. And the second commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. The second commandment is tied closely to the first, that as we come to see God for who he is, then we begin to recognize the dignity of the humans that he created, made in his image and his likeness. And as we worship him fully with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we cannot help but to respect the dignity of the human person everywhere we come across it. And so for us, these commands really can't be separated. In fact, in one part in Scripture, it says, how can you say you love your brother, you, you, you love God whom you've not seen when you hate your brother who you have seen, right? We, in order for us to, to truly love God, it has to be exhibited through the way that we treat other people, the dignity of the human person who we come face to face with every day. And so I want us to think about, it's already a hard enough thing to consider, how do I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? Well, the answer, I think, is really truly um, to express it in our love and our care and our concern for the dignity of the human person made in his image who we see in front of us. Yes, absolutely. Participate in the sacramental life and worship him in spirit and truth and in that way. But also recognize the dignity of the human person and care for the ones who are right in our midst. 
Our reading from church history today comes from a homily from the second century. Great is the mercy that Jesus Christ has shown us. The first benefit that we owe to his mercy is that we who are living do not sacrifice to dead gods or worship them, but have through Christ attained a knowledge of the Father. What else is knowledge of the Father but the recognition of him through whom this knowledge comes to us? He himself declares, everyone who acknowledges me, I in turn will acknowledge in the presence of my Father. This then will be our reward if we acknowledge him through whom we have been saved. But how shall we show that we acknowledge him? By doing what he says, by not disobeying his commands, and by honoring him not only with our lips, but with our whole heart and our whole mind. For he says in Isaiah, This people pays me lip service, but its heart is far from me. Let us not only call him Lord, for that will not save us. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will be saved, he warns, but only the man who does what is right. So then, brothers, let us show our faith in him by our deeds, by loving one another, by not committing adultery, by not finding fault with one another or being envious. Instead, let us be chaste, merciful, and kind. We should also have compassion for one another and not be covetous. We have to prove that we believe in him by performing such actions as these and by avoiding whatever is contrary to them, since we fear God rather than men. Should we fail to do so, we have the Lord's warning. If you do not keep my commands, even though I pressed you to my heart, I will thrust you away from me and say to you, Out of my sight, you whose deeds are evil, you who are complete strangers to me. Therefore, my brothers, let us enter the lists in the knowledge that the contest is imminent. Many men travel far to contend for a crown that soon fades, yet not all of them win, but only those who have strained every nerve and competed fairly. Let us so contend that we may all be crowned. Let us run a straight course in the race of the Christian life, setting out in great numbers to take part in it and then striving for the crown with all our might. Even if we are not able to win, let us at least draw near to victory. Now we must surely know that even when the contest is for a wreath that lasts but a day, if anyone is found to be breaking the rules, he is flogged and driven off the race course. What do you suppose, then, will be the fate of the man who breaks the rules in the contest of the Christian life, of those who have not kept the seal of their baptism unbroken, Scripture says, the worm does not die, and the fire is never extinguished. They will be a spectacle to all men. That reading comes from a homily written in the second century. And oh, let us compete well. Let us love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourself. Holy Spirit, come and empower us to do so, and give us the eyes to see all the things that we must do and can do for the neighbor in our midst, those made in the image and likeness of God, bearing incomparable dignity. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today's show was brought to you by Phil and Tina Parker and all of those who support the show through Patreon. Go to OutsideTheWalls.com, click that Patreon link, and join their numbers. And until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. 
May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.